Queen Lucia by E. F. Benson. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter Three. Though the Hurst was, as befitted its Chatelaine, the most Elizabethanly complete abode in Rhizome, the rest of the village, in its due degree, fell very little short of perfection. It had but its one street some half-mile in length, but that street was a gem of medieval domestic architecture. For the most part, the houses that lined it were blocks of contiguous cottages, which had been converted either singly or by twos and threes into dwellings containing the comforts demanded by the twentieth century, but externally they preserved the antiquity which, though it might be restored or supplemented by bathrooms or other conveniences, presented a truly Elizabethan appearance. There were, of course, accretions such as old inn signs above front doors and old bell-pulls at their sides, but the doors were uniformly of inconveniently low stature. Roofs were of stone slabs or old brick in which a suspiciously abundant crop of antirhinums and stone crops had anchored themselves, and there was hardly a garden that did not contain a path of old paving-stones, a mulberry tree, and some yews cut into shape. Nothing in the place was more blatantly medieval than the village green, across which Georgie took his tripping steps after leaving the presence of his queen. Round it stood a row of great elms, and in its centre was the ducking-pond, according to Rhizome tradition, though perhaps in less classical villages it might have passed merely for a duck-pond. But in Rhizome it would have been rank heresy to dream even in the most pessimistic moments, of its being anything but a ducking-pond. Close by it stood a pair of stocks, about which there was no doubt whatever, for Mr. Lucas had purchased them from a neighbouring iconoclastic village, where they were going to be broken up, and, after having them repaired, had presented them to the village green, and chosen their site close to the ducking-pond. Round the green were grouped the shops of the village, slightly apart from the residential street, and at the far end of it was that undoubtedly Elizabethan hostelry, the Ambermere Arms, full to overflowing of ancient tables and Bible-boxes, and fire-dogs, and fire-backs, and bottles, and chests, and settles. These were purchased in large quantities by the American tourists, who swarmed there during the summer months at a high profit to the nimble proprietor, who thereupon purchased fresh antiquities to take their places. The Ambermere Arms, in fact, was the antique furniture shop of the place, and did a thriving trade, for it was much more interesting to buy objects out of a real old Elizabethan inn than out of a shop. Georgie had put his smart military cape over his arm for his walk, and at intervals applied his slim forefinger to one nostril, while he breathed in through the other, continuing the practice which he had observed going on in Mrs. Quantock's garden. Though it made him a little dizzy, it certainly produced a sort of lightness. But soon he remembered the letter from Mrs. Quantock, which Lucia had read out, warning her that these exercises ought to be taken under instruction, and so desisted. He was going to deliver Lucia's answer at Mrs. Quantock's house, and, with a view to possibly meeting the guru, and being introduced to him, he said over to himself, Guru, 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 instead of doing deep breathing, in order to accustom himself to the unusual syllables. It would, of course, have been very strange and unrisal-like to have gone to a friend's door, even though the errand was so impersonal one as bearing somebody else's note, 
without inquiring whether the friend was in, and being instantly admitted if she was. And as a matter of fact, Georgie caught a glimpse when the knocker was answered, Mrs. Quantock did not have a bell at all, through the open door of the hall of Mrs. Quantock standing in the middle of the lawn on one leg. Naturally, therefore, he ran out into the garden without any further formality. She looked like a little round fat stork whose legs had not grown, but who preserved the habits of her kind. Dear lady, I've brought a note for you, he said. It's from Lucia. The other leg went down, and she turned on him the wide, firm smile that she had learned in the vanished days of Christian science. Om, said Mrs. Quantock, expelling the remainder of her breath. Thank you, my dear Georgie. It's extraordinary what yoga has done for me already. Cold, quite gone. If ever you feel out of sorts, or depressed, or cross, you can cure yourself at once. I've got a visitor staying with me. Have you indeed? asked Georgie, without alluding to the thrilling excitements which had trodden so close on each other's heels since yesterday morning when he had seen the guru in Rush's shop. Yes, and as you've just come from dear Lucia's, perhaps she may have said something to you about him, for I wrote to her about him. He's a guru of extraordinary sanctity from Benares, and he's teaching me the way. You shall see him too, unless he's meditating. I will call to him. If he's meditating, he won't hear me, so we shan't be interrupting him. He wouldn't hear a railway accident if he was meditating. She turned round towards the house. Guru, dear, she called. There was a moment's pause, and the Indian's face appeared at a window. Beloved lady, he said. Guru, dear, I want to introduce a friend of mine to you, she said. This is Mr. Pilson, and when you know him a little better, you will call him Georgie. Beloved lady, I know him very well indeed. I see into his clear white soul. Peace be unto you, my friend. Isn't he marvellous? Fancy, said Mrs. Quantock in an aside. Georgie raised his hat very politely. How do you do? he said. After his quiet practice, he would have said, How do you do, Guru? But it rhymed in a ridiculous manner, and his red lips could not frame the word. I am always well, said the Guru. I am always young and well, because I follow the way. Sixty at least, he tells me, said Mrs. Quantock in a hissing aside, probably audible across the channel, and he thinks more, but the years make no difference to him. He is like a boy. Call him Guru. Guru, began Georgie. Yes, my friend. I am very glad you are well, said Georgie wildly. He was greatly impressed, but much embarrassed. Also, it was so hard to talk at a second-story window with any sense of ease, especially when you had to address a total stranger of extraordinary sanctity from Benares. Luckily, Mrs. Quantock came to the assistance of his embarrassment. Guru, dear, are you coming down to see us? she asked. Beloved lady, no, said the level voice. It is laid on me to wait here. It is the time of calm and prayer, when it is good to be alone. I will come down when the guides bid me, but teach our dear friend what I have taught you. Surely before long I will grasp his earthly hand, but not now. Peace, peace and light. Have you got some guides as well? asked Georgie, when the guru disappeared from the window. And are they Indians too? Oh, those are his spiritual guides, says Mrs. Quantock. He sees them and talks to them, but they're not in the body. She gave a happy sigh. I never have felt anything like it, she said. He has brought such an atmosphere into the house that even Robert feels it, and doesn't mind being turned out of his dressing room. There, he's shut the window. Isn't it all marvellous? 
Georgie had not seen anything particularly marvellous yet, except the phenomenon of Mrs. Quantock standing on one leg in the middle of the lawn, but presumably her emotion communicated itself to him by the subtle inflection of the spirit. "'And what does he do?' he asked. "'My dear, it is not what he does, but what he is,' she said. "'Why, even my little bald account of him to Lucia has made her ask him to a garden party.' Of course, I can't tell whether he will go or not. He seems so very much, how shall I say it, so very much sent to me. But I shall, of course, ask him whether he will consent. Trances and meditation all day, and in the interval such serenity and sweetness. You know, for instance, how tiresome Robert is about his food. Well, last night the mutton, I am bound to say, was a little underdone, and Robert was beginning to throw it about his plate in the way he has. Well, my guru got up and just said, Show me the way to kitchen. He leaves out little words sometimes, because they don't matter. And I took him down, and he said, Peace. He told me to leave him there, and in ten minutes he was up again with a little plate of curry and rice and what had been underdone mutton, and you never ate anything so good. Robert had most of it, and I had the rest, and my guru was so pleased at seeing Robert pleased. He said Robert had a pure white soul just like you, only I wasn't to tell him, because for him the way ordained that he must find it out for himself. And today, before lunch again, the guru went down in the kitchen, and my cook told me he only took a pinch of pepper, and a tomato, and a little bit of mutton fat, and a sardine, and a bit of cheese, and he brought up a dish that you never saw equalled. Delicious! I shouldn't a bit wonder if Robert began breathing exercises soon. There is one that makes you lean and young, and exercises your liver. This sounded very entrancing. Can you teach me that? asked George eagerly. He had been rather distressed about his increasing plumpness for a year past, and about his increasing age for longer than that. As for his liver, he always had to be careful. She shook her head. You cannot practice it except under tuition from an expert, she said. Georgie rapidly considered what Hermes and Ursie's comments would be if, when they arrived tomorrow, he was found doing exercises under the tuition of a guru. Hermie, when she was not otter-hunting, could be very sarcastic, and he had a clear month of Hermie in front of him, without any otter-hunting, which, so she had informed him, was not possible in August. This was mysterious to Georgie, because it did not seem likely that all otters died in August and a fresh brood came in like caterpillars. If Hermie were here in October, she would otter-hunt all morning and snore all afternoon, and be in the best of tempers. But the August visit required more careful steering. Yet the prospect of being lean and young and internally untroubled was wonderfully tempting. But couldn't he be my guru as well? he asked. Quite suddenly, and by some demoniac possession, a desire that had been only intermittently present in Mrs. Quantock's consciousness took full possession of her. A red revolutionary insurgence hoisted its banner. Why, with this stupendous novelty in the shape of a guru, shouldn't she lead and direct Rizal instead of Lucia? She had long wondered why darling Lucia should be queen of Rizal, and had, by momentary illumination, seen herself thus equipped as far more capable of exercising supremacy. After all, everybody in Rizal knew Lucia's old tune by now, and was in his secret consciousness quite aware that she did not play the second and third movements of the Moonlight Sonata simply because they went faster, 
however much she might cloak the omission by saying that they resembled eleven o'clock in the morning and three p.m. And Mrs. Quantock had often suspected that she did not read one quarter of the books she talked about, and that she got up subjects in the encyclopedia in order to make a brave show that covered essential ignorance. Certainly she spent a good deal of money over entertaining, but Robert had lately made twenty times daily what Lucia spent annually over Romanian oils. As for her acting, had she not completely forgotten her words as Lady Macbeth in the middle of the sleepwalking scene? But here was Lucia, as proved by her note, and her A.D.C. Georgie, wildly interested in the Guru. Mrs. Quantock conjectured that Lucia's plan was to launch the Guru at her August parties as her own discovery. He would be a novelty, and it would be Lucia who gave OM parties, and breathing parties, and standing on one leg parties, while she herself, Daisy Quantock, would be bidden to these as a humble guest, and Lucia would get all the credit, and, as likely as not, invite the discoverer, the inventress, just now and then. Mrs. Quantock's guru would become Lucia's guru, and all Rizal would flock hungrily, for light and leading, to the hearst. She had written to Lucia in all sincerity, hoping that she would extend the hospitality of her garden parties to the guru. But now the very warmth of Lucia's reply caused her to suspect this ulterior motive. She had been too precipitate, too rash, too ill-advised, too sudden, as Lucia would say. She ought to have known that Lucia, with her August parties coming on, would have jumped at a guru, and withheld him for her own parties, taking the wind out of Lucia's August sails. Lucia had already suborned Georgie to leave this note, and begin to filch the guru away. Mrs. Quantock saw it all now, and clearly this was not to be borne. Before she answered, she steeled herself with the triumph she had once scored in the matter of the Welsh attorney. Dear Georgie, she said, no one would be more delighted than I if my guru consented to take you as a pupil. But you can't tell what he will do, as he said to me today, apropos of myself, I cannot come unless I am sent. Was not that wonderful? He knew at once he had been sent to me. By this time Georgie was quite determined to have the guru. The measure of his determination may be gauged from the fact that he forgot all about Lucia's garden party. But he called me his friend, he said. He told me I had a clean white soul. Yes, but that is his attitude towards everybody, said Mrs. Quantock. His religion makes it impossible for him to think ill of anybody. But he didn't say that to Rush, cried Georgie, when he asked for some brandy to be put down to you. Mrs. Quantock's expression changed for a moment, but that moment was too short for Georgie to notice it. Her face instantly cleared again. Naturally, he cannot go about saying that sort of thing, she observed. Common people, he is of the highest caste, would not understand him. Georgie made the direct appeal. Please ask him to teach me, he said. For a moment Mrs. Quantock did not answer, but cocked her head sideways in the direction of the pear tree where a thrush was singing. It fluted a couple of repeated phrases, and then was silent again. Mrs. Quantock gave a great smile to the pear tree. Thank you, little brother, she said. She turned to Georgie again. That comes out of St. Francis, she said. But yoga embraces all that is true in every religion. Well, I will ask my guru whether he will take you as a pupil, but I can't answer for what he will say. 
"'What does he... what does he charge for his lesson?' asked Georgie. The Christian science smile illuminated her face again. "'The word money never passes his lips,' she said. "'I don't think he really knows what it means. "'He proposed to sit on the green with a beggar's bowl, "'but, of course, I would not permit that, "'and for the present I just give him all he wants. "'No doubt when he goes away, "'which I hope will not be for many weeks yet, "'though no one can tell when he will have another call,' I shall slip something suitably generous into his hand. But I don't think about that. Must you be going? Good night, dear Georgie. Peace. Om. His last backward glance as he went out of the front door revealed her standing on one leg again, just as he had seen her first. He remembered a print of a fakir at Benares standing in that same attitude. And if the stream that flowed into the Avon could be combined with the Ganges and the garden into the burning gort, and the swooping swallows into kites, and the neat parlour-maid who showed him out into a Brahmin, and the Chinese gong that was so prominent an object in the hall into a piece of Benares brassware, he could almost have fancied himself as standing on the brink of the sacred river. The marigolds in the garden required no transmutation. Georgie had quite to pull himself together as he stepped round Mrs. Quantock's mulberry tree, and ten paces later round his own, before he could recapture his normal evening mood on those occasions when he was going to dine alone. Usually these evenings were very pleasant and much occupied, for they did not occur very often in this whirl of Rhizom life, and it was not more than once a week that he spent a solitary evening and then, if he got tired of his own company, there were half a dozen houses easy of access where he could betake himself in his military cloak and spend a postprandial hour. But oftener than not, when these occasions occurred, he would be quite busy at home, dusting a little china and rearranging ornaments on his shelves, and, after putting his rings and handkerchief in the candle bracket of the piano, spending a serious hour, with the soft pedal down for fear of irritating Robert, in reading his share of such duets as he would be likely to be called upon to play with Lucia during the next day or two. Though he read music better than she did, he used to go over the part alone first, and let it be understood that he had not seen it before. But then he was sure that she had done precisely the same, so they started fair. Such things whiled away very pleasantly the hours till eleven, when he went to bed, and it was seldom that he had to set out patience cards to tide him over the slow minutes. But every now and then, and to-night was one of those occasions, there occurred evenings when he never went out to dinner even if he was asked, because he was busy indoors. They occurred about once a month, these evenings that he was busy indoors, and even an invitation from Lucia would not succeed in disturbing them. Ages ago, Rison had decided what made Georgie busy indoors once a month, and so none of his friends chattered about the nature of his engagements to anyone else, simply because everybody else knew. His business indoors, in fact, was a perfect secret from having been public property for so long. June had been a very busy time, not indoors, but with other engagements, and as Georgie went up to his bedroom, having been told by Foljambi that the hairdresser was waiting for him, and had been waiting this last ten minutes, he glanced at his hair in the Cromwellian mirror that hung on the stairs, and was quite aware 
that it was time he submitted himself to Mr. Holroyd's ministrations. There was certainly an undergrowth of grey hair visible beneath his chestnut crop that should have been attended to at least a fortnight ago. Also there was a growing thinness in the locks that crossed his head. Mr. Holroyd had attended to that before, and had suggested a certain remedy, not in the least inconvenient, unless Georgie proposed to be athletic without a cap in a high wind, and even then not necessarily so. But as he had no intention of being athletic anywhere, with or without a cap, he determined as he went up the stairs that he would follow Mr. Holroyd's advice. Mr. Holroyd's procedure, without this added formula, entailed sitting till it dried, and after that he would have dinner and then Mr. Holroyd would begin again. He was a very clever person with regard to the face and the hands and the feet. Georgie had been conscious of walking a little lamely lately. He had been even more conscious of the need of hot towels on his face, and the tap-tap of Mr. Holroyd's fingers, and the stretching of Mr. Holroyd's thumb across rather slack surfaces of cheek and chin. In the interval between the hair and the face, Mr. Holroyd should have a good supper downstairs with Foljambi and the cook. And tomorrow morning, when he met Hermie and Ursy, Georgie would be just as spick and span and young as ever, if not more so. Georgie, happy innocent, was completely unaware that the whole of Rhizome knew that the smooth chestnut locks which covered the top of his head were trained like the tendrils of a grapevine from the roots and flowed like a river over a bare head, and consequently, when Mr. Holroyd explained the proposed innovation, a little central wig, the edges of which would mingle in the most natural manner with his own hair, it seemed to Georgie that nobody would know the difference. In addition, he would be spared those risky moments when he had to take off his hat to a friend in a high wind, for there was always the danger of his hair blowing away from the top of his head, and hanging down like the tresses of a Rhine maiden over one shoulder. So Mr. Holroyd was commissioned to put that little affair in hand at once, and when the greyness had been attended to, and Georgie had had his dinner, there came hot towels and tappings on his face and other ministrations. All was done about half-past ten, and when he came downstairs again for a short practice at the bass part of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, ingeniously arranged for two performers on the piano, he looked with sincere satisfaction at his rosy face in the Cromwellian mirror, and his shoes felt quite comfortable again, and his nails shone like pink stars as his hands dashed wildly about the piano in the quicker passages. But all the time the thought of the guru next door, under whose tuition he might be able to regain his youth without recourse to those expensive subterfuges, for the price of the undetectable toupee astonished him, rang in his head with a melody more haunting than Beethoven's. What he would have liked best of all would have been to have the guru all to himself, so that he should remain perpetually young, while all the rest of Rizalm, including Hermie and Ursy, grew old. Then, indeed, he would be king of the place, instead of serving the interests of its queen. He rose with a little sigh, and, after adjusting the strip of flannel, over the keys, shut his piano, and busied himself for a little with a soft duster over his cabinet of bibelots, which not even Foljambi was allowed to touch. It was generally understood that he had inherited them, though the inheritance had chiefly passed to him through the medium of curiosity shops, 
and there were several pieces of considerable value among them. There was a gold Louis the Sixteenth snuff-box, a miniature by Karl Huth, a silver toy porringer of the time of Queen Anne, a piece of bow china, an enamelled cigarette case by Fabergé. But tonight his handling of them was not so dainty and delicate as usual, and he actually dropped the porringer on the floor as he was dusting it, for his mind still occupied itself with the guru and the practices that led to permanent youth. How quick Lucia had been to snap him up for her garden party! Yet perhaps she would not get him, for he might say he was not sent. But surely he would be sent to Georgie, whom he knew the moment he set eyes on him to have a clean white soul. The clock struck eleven, and as usual on warm nights Georgie opened the glass door into his garden and drew in a breath of the night air. There was a slip of moon in the sky which he most punctiliously saluted, wondering, though he did not seriously believe in its superstition, how Lucia could be so foolhardy as to cut the new moon. She had seen it yesterday, she told him, in London, and had taken no notice whatever of it. The heavens were quickly peppered with pretty stars, which Georgie, after his busy, interesting day, enjoyed looking at though if he had had the arrangement of them he would certainly have put them in more definite patterns. Among them was a very red planet, and Georgie, with recollections of his classical education, easily remembered that Mars, the god of war, was symbolised in the heavens by a red star. Could that mean anything to peaceful Rhizome? Was internal warfare, were revolutionary movements possible in so serene a realm? End of chapter